can't get enough eye-popping, jaw-dropping, heart-stopping reality TV. It's the best. Then head to Hey You, home of reality on demand. Stream and download the latest episodes from shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians and The Real Housewives, same day as the US. What's more fun than that? Or binge old faves like The Simple Life and The Hills. That's hot. Hey You, reality on demand. Start your one-month free trial now. Hello everyone and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen and with me are... Vinter Hardwar And Jeff Kanata. Welcome to the show everyone. What we're going to do here today on this podcast is talk about what we've been watching uh, and then moving on into an in-depth review of The Incredibles 2 featuring Matt Singer from ScreenCrush.com. Really psyched about that. You can find more episodes of this show at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Domingo, your, your audio is a little different today. I think you're, uh, you're coming at us from a different location, yeah? Yeah, I'm coming from my parents' place in Georgia. So I have a headset here. Hopefully it's not going to be too bad. Uh, but good to be down here. Yeah, yeah um, and I, I saw you tweeted out that you brought home some 4K Blu-rays to, to show the family, right? Yeah, as I do every time. Um, but I brought, yeah, Phantom Thread, Annihilation... Uh, what else? Uh, Blade Runner 2049. But I think most excited, uh, I brought the entire Mission Impossible 4K Blu-ray set, uh, which we just got in the mail. And I'm so excited to dive into those movies again. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, Divindra, all great films that you just mentioned. I don't know if that I would watch any of those with my parents personally, but <laughs> uh, but fair enough. You know, whatever whatever works for your family dynamics is cool. I mean, Annihilation is pure family viewing. Come yeah, on. yeah, pure family yeah. viewing. Uh, also, you did mention, yeah, that we recently uh, acquired the Mission Impossible 4K Blu-ray set. Uh, or 4K UHD, whatever it's called. Yeah, it's uh, all mm-hmm. five discs, and we are going to be doing a retrospective episode of those Mission Impossible Blu-rays coming up soon. So I really believe, psyched about I that. I believe uh, it is actually 15 discs. Isn't, isn't each one three discs? Uh, I think there's probably, uh, you know, I've, I've only cracked open a couple of them. I haven't looked through all of them. But yeah, there's a lot of, because uh, most of them include like the Blu-ray as well as the 4K, as far as I understand, right? Yeah, so, a lot of discs. We're drowning in discs. We're drowning in so many discs. So many, so much Tom Cruise. Uh, yeah. So looking forward to that. That'll be a lot of fun. Stay tuned to hear when that's going to be happening. And uh, be sure to catch up on all your Mission Impossible so that you can join along with the fun. Uh, okay, in terms of what we've been watching, gentlemen, let's get into it today. Uh, I've been watching a few things. But the one thing I watched that I wanted to mention really quickly is uh, Ocean's 8. Finally had mm-hmm. a chance to see this. So, Devinder, you saw this, right? We talked about this last week on the podcast. I have not seen it. Actually. Oh, you have not. I'm looking okay. forward to seeing it, but okay. Not you, yet. <laughs> you spoke about Gary Ross's lackluster direction last week, as though it's you'd more already like seen the film. Gary Ross in general, guys. <laughs> uh, I remember the Hunger Games. Yeah, the Hunger Games. Pretty rough. When we reviewed the Hunger Games, I was like, "Man, this is there's so much good here, except for Gary Ross." And then they changed that franchise to uh, Francis Lawrence, and it got a lot better. So, imagine that. Uh, Ocean's 8, uh, so here's the great things about Ocean's 8. Obviously, the cast is amazing. They have great chemistry together, uh, and you know it, it, the movie is a lot of fun. It's a great date movie. 
no no hard feelings against the movie whatsoever. But what was painful about Ocean's 8 is it is like watching someone trying to do a Steven Soderbergh impression. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it's in terms of the editing and in terms of the music, but it, it's not quite a good Steven Soderbergh impression. It's like a, a pretty lackluster Steven Soderbergh impression. And so imagine watching that for an hour and 55 minutes. You know, it, it just uh, – it's painful when you watch someone do an impression of someone who it's not quite there. You know, it's like watching a really bad SNL bit or something like that. And um, uh, I think we already touched upon many of the issues of this film in our discussion of it last week. But uh, yeah, when when you try to do an impression of one of a fairly distinctive filmmaker, uh, and it just ends up feeling like like a cop like a pretty low grade copy of something rather than something bold and original. Uh, but nothing, um, nothing against the film. I mean, it, it is fun. Uh, but I did go back and rewatch Oceans Eleven and Twelve just to make sure that my viewpoint on this was defensible. <laughs> just to be like, okay, is, is Steven Soderbergh actually, in fact, uh, distinctive? Like, is the quality of, of these films are they in fact higher? Uh, and I think the answer is yes. I, Oceans Eleven helped create mm-hmm. this this genre. It was parodied endlessly. Had a lot of cultural impact in a way that other movies didn't and i think uh it still holds up as a really fun caper oceans 12 this is a movie that's extremely divisive so much fun yeah uh Je- like jeff canada you, you see oceans 12 Did you ever have of course it? yeah i loved it I, I really did i liked both 11 and 12 i, really? I yeah. believe we reviewed 12 on the on the, the totally rad show if i'm not mistaken but yeah um do you, by the way quick side note do you think they called it Oceans Eight this time so they could leave it oh, open yeah. for a trilogy? Yeah, Most we did. This yeah, is yeah. What we talked about this last week on the show when you were oh. here. Yeah. That, yeah, that is that is one of the reasons I think because they can have an eight, nine, ten, and based on the box office performance, it looks like that will be will be the case. Like it is doing pretty well, so um, we'll see how it does. I really want to see it. I haven't seen eight yet myself, um, but you know, based on what you're saying, I can totally understand. But I, I kind of also get the idea that that visual style is a little bit the series, you know, I, I understand maybe you would want somebody to come in and, and put their own stamp on things and be bold and original, but I can also understand feeling like, well, that kinetic Soderbergh thing is kind of part of the package that you're selling. So mm-hmm. I can but understand you could, somebody. You feeling, could do it differently though, right? Like Edgar Wright, yeah. I think has similar styles and you look at like baby driver or something and a yeah. lot of it's, it's just a different way of playing the same melody. Ocean's 12 is one of the most divisive sequels of, of all time, I think, because it is such a uh, deviation from the previous film. I think a lot of people were expecting like another really tight, well-put-together caper film, and it is not that at all, right? It is very uh, much more about tone, much more about mood, much more about... Uh, just hanging out with these characters, the relationship between these characters. Um, it's kind of like a deconstruction of a yeah. heist film, too. Yeah, yeah. Matt Singer actually wrote this great piece at Screen Crush, our, our guest today on the show. Matt Singer wrote this great piece about how Ocean's 12 is a meta-commentary about the difficulty of putting together a sequel. 
uh, for a very popular film. It's like all these these guys, uh, you know, they're uh, Terry Benedict comes back and he he wants the same money but more. You know, he wants the same amount of money, but he he wants interest on it. So it's like you got to make something, but it's like even more interesting and even more money. Uh, and uh, you know, their heart is not into it, but their heart is like they're all they'll always be you know. Uh, con men at heart but like really like they're trying to force it sometimes in the movie and you know at one point where the characters like are, we're forcing it and it's like not wor- really working very well so there's a lot of commentary about the difficulty of making a sequel in oceans 12 um that i think is uh is is pretty interesting so uh i, I think that movie is unfairly maligned and just wanted to give it a shout out but i do think oceans 11 and 12 are still really solid oceans 8 not a bad film um, but it, it ha- there's a ceiling on how good that movie can be, and that ceiling is Ocean's Eleven, in my opinion. Well, I noticed you. Uh, do you remember Ocean's Thirteen, Dave? Like, how does Eight compare to that? Because I remember not like. Yeah, I would say I would say they're fairly comparable. I mean, Ocean's Thirteen feels like uh, a yeah. pale imitation of Ocean's Eleven. Why are we you know? doing this again? Yeah. Um, the the only benefit of Ocean's Thirteen is you have Al Pacino doing a fairly. Uh, classic Al Pacino performance, but yeah, Ocean's Thirteen is not a particularly interesting yeah. movie. And uh, Topher Grace, don't forget Topher Grace. Oh yeah, Topher Grace. Um, but uh, we mentioned uh, box office, you know, in, in our conversation, or I, I mentioned box office. Wanted to throw out a couple of uh, of details follow up from last week actually um i should have gotten to this first but i'm a little disorganized because we're recording at 7 a.m in the morning so apologies for that uh but a uh, cu- couple follow-ups first of all hereditary continues to do really well at the box office i mean uh this is an extremely low budget film and it has already made in the united states uh 27 million dollars that's more money than the witch made in its entire uh run and it's another a24 uh, horror film that did pretty well. We got a bunch of emails about Hereditary this week. Uh, this email comes in from Will McPherson, who writes into slash filmcast at gmail.com. Saw Hereditary this past weekend and absolutely loved it. Unfortunately, my audience did everything in their power to ruin it for me. Apparently, provocative imagery is hilarious. I had similar experiences with previously uh, previous A24 releases, The Witch and It Comes at Night. General audiences aren't looking for well-written, superbly acted original content uh, from their horror movies. The fact that people were laughing uh, at it as if it were somehow beneath them, I find it discouraging. Then again, Trump is our president. Why do I even give a shit about anything? That email comes in from Will, writing into (laughs) slash filmcast at gmail.com. 2018 mood, by the way. 2018 mood. uh, So... Yeah, uh, this is an email and a, a tweet, you know, that we've gotten from a bunch of people that that basically people watch Hereditary, and there was a lot of, you know, uh, Jeff Kanata, no spoilers. There's a bunch of horrifying imagery in Hereditary, and people <laughs> have have laughed at it rather than reacting in the way that they're supposed to. Uh, I saw this movie at a press screening. Everyone was very respectful, uh, but I can imagine it completely ruining my experience if people were. Uh, we're laughing at it. Uh, mm-hmm. Jeff, have you been in movies where people have been laughing when they're supposed to be, you know, scared or, or silent? Yeah. And, yeah, you know, and you, and it, th- there are different kinds of laughter, right? There's uncomfortable laughter. There's there's laughter because y- you, you don't know how else to react. Right, right. <laughs> um, and sometimes that can be good. That can be – it can mean the movie is working uh, as intended. Um, but I do think there – the – irony culture that we're currently in uh the uh everything is for lols culture that we're in i think that our emailer references that a bit um certainly 
that can feel very frustrating if you're super, super invested in something and and my my biggest gripe and this is we're kind of bordering on slash film court right yeah, now but it's a mini slash film court here yep yeah my my biggest gripe and this happens frequently in Los Angeles and I think you can infer why uh uh, my biggest gripe is when people react, laugh, et cetera, as a way of performance for the rest of the audience, you know, as a way of, hey, I'm saying something so that you guys give a reaction to me. Yeah. I am performing for you. Uh, I am laughing as a way of saying something, not because it's a genuine moment of laughter, but because I would like to comment on the film to the rest of the audience. Um, and that that just chaps my hide no no end yeah it's like we're not going to see the film to see you random person of the audience we're going to see the film right Uh, but Uh, but that often happens during trailers by the way i mean i have my eyes and ears closed during trailers but i've often noted uh people you know trying to uh make a comment on the trailer by by laughing at it Mm. instead of with it well that that i don't mind as much because it's just a trailer it's not the actual movie but fair enough fair enough uh devendra you know uh, I, I think the question is like if if someone were, were to laugh during the screen, you can't stop people from having their normal human reaction to the film, right? right? So like, I don't really know that there's that much you can do other than maybe you can't do anything. Le- yeah, leave the theater the and like try for a different screening, you know, which is not a luxury that a lot of people have. Of fellow humans, basically, like that's the problem, and that's a, that's the risk you take when you do anything in public. So that is the magic and the curse of going to the cinema. Um, for me, like I think people laughed at the appropriate points because the movie is darkly funny at times. Like there is a dinner conversation that I think is hilarious in how deep and cutting it can be. And yeah, so it, it's not like you're never supposed to laugh at that movie. I think some people laugh at scary things because uh, they don't know how else to respond. And then some people are just kind of dicks about it. It's like, oh, man, look at this stupid thing. Uh, it's supposed to be scary, but I, I'm just going to laugh at it, I guess. Yeah, um, I, I think it's just a it's a normal reaction, um, but it, it is unfortunate that a lot of people had their screenings ruined by people laughing at the movie. But yeah, and there's nothing nothing you can do. Uh, but appreciate people like Will writing in. We got a bunch of emails like that. Uh, and Hereditary, Jeff Kanata, uh, worth checking out. Probably in an empty theater. Um, so <laughs> I've been told uh, I might not want to have seen this. Yeah, yeah, Dave. Uh, sorry, Jeff. Uh, yeah, maybe <laughs> don't. Maybe just yeah. wait on this movie, and certainly not alone in an empty theater. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess it's not a movie you want to watch if you have two kids. Um, that's what I'm, yeah. that's what I've been told. Yeah, and just knowing Jeff too, like I feel like this movie will destroy you. So yeah. let's let's not do that yet. Let's I wait mean, till depend, after. You know, 20. if you want to watch movies to feel something, it's a good it's a good one to watch, Jeff. It'll make you feel something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, and uh, I, I you know it's not high on my list of things to rush out to just because I'm. Not sure I want to put myself through that. I mean, mm-hmm. the news is putting me through that daily, so who knows? But um, yeah, we'll, we'll, I, I'm curious, very curious. All right. Uh, well, just want to give a shout out to all those emailers. Anyway, back to what we've been watching. Sorry about going a little out of order, guys. Uh, Devendra, you've been watching some stuff this week. Yeah, I saw First Reformed, the new film by Paul Schrader. You know, that he's a well-known guy, the writer of Taxi Driver and so many great classic films. Uh, this movie is is kind of amazing. It's um, imagine if Travis Bickle were a priest. 
Like, imagine it's basically like that premise, except set today. Um, it stars Ethan Hawke as a priest who's kind of uh, lost his faith in God, mainly because the world, mainly because everything around us. Like, this is a very um, progressive and environmentally focused film. So it is a lot about him losing his own faith, and then he encounters um, one of the people, uh, you know, within his, uh, I don't know you call that, one of his, it's not followers, I guess, but well, somebody from his congregation who is also having a crisis of faith. And it's a guy who is like a, um, he's an eco-warrior, and he's about to have a baby, and he doesn't want to have the baby because he doesn't want to bring a child into the world today. Because we've ruined the world, guys. Uh, by the time, you know, that child is an adult, they will have to live through, like, the climate crisis uh, that we've basically created for the past, you know, several hundred years. Um, and that is the main crux of the movie. And it's kind of an amazing thing to think about right now. Jeff, I'm sure you've had, you know, these worries too. It's like, yeah. how do you bring a child into the world today? Because everything is terrible. And yeah. that is the entire like argument of the movie that's that's what the movie is like struggling with and toiling with um i found it kind of amazing because it's uh it's one of ethan Hawke's best performances he's uh very tortured you know he's he's lost his faith he's also an alcoholic priest so he's just like dealing with a lot of issues and um i think sort of like taxi driver too he finds a bit of uh maybe a bit of um relief from chatting with and uh, working with uh, the mother of that, uh, that child, um, played by Amanda Seyfried. And, you know, he forms a connection with her and she kind of shows him that, yeah, maybe, maybe there is something to live for that. That's, it, it feels like taxi driver redone today in the setting of like, you know, a Protestant church. Uh, it's a beautiful film. It is kind of amazing that it deals with, you know, really, um, pressing issues right now. And at the same time there, I think what's amazing about this movie, I won't say too much about the ending, um, but basically, you know, you, you're not going to get the catharsis you maybe want from a movie like this. And I love how this movie kind of deals with that fact. It's kind of incredibly cynical in how it approaches all this, but also very realistic. So I found it fascinating and definitely worth watching on a big screen, too. Um, it's a beautiful film. So worth checking out. First Reformed is out in theaters now. You saw it in, in a theater in New York, I assume. Yeah, 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 it's worth it. Um, you know, and that th this is another movie where I feel like you go and people will just start laughing at certain aspects of it. Huh. Uh, but it glows places I certainly did not expect. Very cool. I've heard great things about it. I've heard it's one of the best films of the year. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to checking it out. That's First Reformed. It has 96% Rotten Tomatoes right now. It's out in theaters right now. Jeff Kanata, you've been watching some stuff, right? Yes, uh, my wife and I watched all the way through Killing Eve, the BBC. Uh, we watched it on BBC America. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, this is, I believe, eight episode uh, series um, about a uh, a serial killer and the the uh, law enforcement person obsessed with tracking her down. Um, it is really good. Uh, I was very dissatisfied with how it wraps up. The, the last few episodes I found um, very, very unsatisfying. Um, but I would recommend the show. It's very pulpy. Um, it, it, it starts out, I think, really, really strong. And then sort of, in my opinion, loses its way. But 
the performances are so strong, and it is it is mostly an a, all female cast. So you don't usually see stories like this done with all women, especially you know a, a female serial killer uh, assassin. Uh, it almost feels like a companion piece to Red Sparrow <laughs> in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Red Sparrow certainly informed it because it's as if Red Sparrow were fun, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like a different character from the same school that Red Sparrow went to. You know, like having her own adventures. Um, so it, it, interesting. If you've seen Red Sparrow, I think it, it'll it'll sort of add to that experience. But um, Sandra O oh plays the uh, I can't even. She's an MI5 agent. MI5. That's what yeah. it is. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, she, and I just think Sandra Oh is such a phenomenal actress. She's so good, so good. And she's particularly great in this. Um, but the sort of gobsmacking performance comes from uh, Jodie Comer. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, who is a British actress who plays uh, Villanelle, the, the serial killer assassin. Uh, and just gets to chew scenery. I mean, she just gets to have so much fun because she plays this, uh, you know, insane, uh, over-the-top killer, but she does it with such panache and fun. It it is, um, like I said, very pulpy, more pulpy than I was expecting. I thought it was going to be a more sort of straight-laced crime kind of show, but it is, it's really, it goes wacky. Um, And there's some fun in that, but... Ultimately, where it ends up, I, I found myself uh, pretty dissatisfied with. It'll be interesting to see if they do a season two. Uh, certainly, possibility of that at the end of this, but um, it's a fun ride. My wife and I were both hooked uh, just from the first episode, and I think people will enjoy it. If you if you're curious and need a new show to watch, I think you can power through eight episodes of this on the BBC America app as we did, and and have some fun. It's it like I said, great performances. Um, some really fun moments, but, uh, and also Fiona Shaw's in it. I'm a huge Fiona Shaw fan. Mm-hmm. She's great. Uh, did and you watch all of this? by, t- uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge too, like yes. most of the show. So, you know, like there's a lot of good things here, Jeff. Yeah, I saw it all. I loved it all. What I love is that it can be fun and pulpy and zany at times and then instantly dramatic. Like there's always yeah. like, there is, um, you know, an air of tension around it all because this is such a cat and mouse game. Uh, you know, people die, and you feel that dramatic loss too. Yeah. And so it it balances, it juggles a lot of balls. I think, and I think it's uh, really fascinating because of that. I found it frustrating in the sense that uh, Eve Palastri, played by Sandra O, oh, uh, is constantly doing the worst thing you could do in any situation. <laughs> and I found I found that a little frustrating. Oh, yeah. and I know she's supposed to be a you know a rogue. Sort of, uh, you know, she's thrust into this position that but she's that... she's also driven by obsession in a yes. weird way too. It is in a, it is sort of like the heat thing where yes. the cop is obsessed about getting this guy, and then the killer, you know, is also obsessed with the cop in a way. Like right. it, I don't know that relationship is something I don't think we've seen before. Certainly not in a spy thing like this. No, I agree with that 100%. I felt they leaned into that a little too hard for mm-hmm. for my money. Uh, just it felt a little bit. I like I I wasn't I didn't buy that relationship. I felt like it it was a little forced for me, and maybe it works better as a as a novel where you can see the inner workings of of brains. Um, but um, but again, very worth watching and a lot of fun. And uh, I I can I can recommend Killing Eve on BBC America. All right, very cool. Killing Eve. Uh, her great things about it. I am hoping to check it out at some point. I have it all DVR'd on 
uh, my YouTube TV account. So uh, looking forward to diving into it there. Before we get to our review of Incredibles 2, uh, we want to thank all the people who donated to the podcast this week. Thanks to James Chapman, Nathan from the Fast Food Friends podcast, and Hugh from Australia. Hugh, a longtime supporter of our work. Uh, thank you guys so much for your contributions. We really appreciate it. All the money you donate does go to help us defray the cost of uh, seeing films and putting on the show. Uh, you can also... Donate yourself, if you're listening right now, by going to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash and then the word filmcast. You can also go to slashfilm.com, click on the slash filmcast tab, use the PayPal links on the side of the page. So thanks again to everyone for donating. Let's get to our review of The Incredibles 2. Did you wash your hands with soap? Did you dry them? Is this all vegetables? Who wanted all vegetables? I did. So, are we going to talk about it? Why? The elephant in the room. What elephant? Mom's new job. It's time to make some wrong things right. Help me bring supers back into the sunlight. We need to change people's perceptions about superheroes. And Elastigirl is our best play. Better than me? <clears throat> Whoa! I like Mom's new job! Bye, sweetie. I'll watch the kids, no problem. That was from the trailer for The Incredibles 2, the newest film by writer-director Brad Bird. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. Bob Parr, a.k.a. Mr. Incredible, is left to care for Jack-Jack while Helen, a.k.a. Elastigirl, is out saving the world. Uh, joining us today for our review of The Incredibles 2 is the editor-in-chief of ScreenCrush.com. He's also a multiple-time uh, Slash Filmcast guest. Matt Singer, welcome back to Slash Filmcast. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? Really good. Uh, and good to have you on. Uh, and I thought it'd be great to have you on because uh, you are a uh, film critic like Jeff Kanata, uh, who has recently become a parent, right? Uh, and uh, The Incredibles 2 is very much about the, the act of parenting. And I think you tweet very often uh, in humorous fashion about your parenting misadventures. <laughs> so uh, so really, really glad to have you on today. Uh, and I think like you saw like the, the parts about parenting – of Incredibles 2 really resonated with you. Isn't that correct? It did, yes. Yes, a chill went up <laughs> my spine and down my spine and then <laughs> up my spine again. And then I passed out because I hadn't slept in seven months. Mm. Mm. <laughs> uh, well, let's get into it. Um, Matt Singer, like, what did you think overall of The Incredibles 2? Is, is this a movie you were even excited about? Because I, I think everyone here on the podcast right now is, was a fan of The Incredibles 1. Um, mm-hmm. Incredibles 2 felt like it could have been more of a cash grab than a, uh, than a really kind of exciting, new, bold, original idea that was begging to be made into a film. What did you think of this film? I liked it. I don't. I don't think it's quite as uh, solid and outstanding as the original film, but I enjoyed it. I saw it again for the second time yesterday. I actually took my, I took both of my daughters. One of them is seven months old, so she's. I don't expect her to remember too much of the experience, mm-hmm. but uh, 
But um, I took my older daughter to the theater to see it yesterday. It was her first theatrical movie. And, uh, I, you know, like the movie is like uh, – to me, it's like a three-and-a-half star movie. But uh, watching watching my daughter watch it was like – you know, that was like 10 out of 10. That was awesome. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's. I think it's. I think it's very well made. Uh, I think uh, you get to enjoy a lot of the time with the characters, and the characters are all really great. There's a couple of things that I, I, I question. I do wonder if, because supposedly this movie, I think, was originally going to come out next year, mm. um, and Toy Story 4, I believe, was supposed to come out this year. That was like the original plan, but they pushed Toy Story back because they weren't satisfied with that movie's development or whatever wasn't going to be ready to their satisfaction so they pushed that back and bumped this up and there are some places where i think you can kind of feel they maybe rushed it a little bit which is maybe weird to say for a movie that's 14 years after the first film but i do wonder if it had come out on schedule next year if it would have been even better right but i but i've I've seen it twice I, i liked it both times quite a bit i didn't like it any less the second time i i enjoyed certain things um, maybe more the the second time I got to appreciate a little more the second time. So yeah, I, I think you know I, I would not put it amongst the the, the masterpieces of Pixar uh, or even you know quite on par with the first film, but uh, I, I definitely would recommend it. I definitely think it's a lot of fun. So you think it's like mid tier Pixar, right? In the middle yeah, third yeah, of Pixar. Solid. Film. Solid Pixar, but not uh, not exceptional Pixar. All right, Jeff Kanata, your thoughts? You know, I mostly agree with that. Um, I do want to mention. I don't want us to not talk about Bow. We we definitely need to talk about mm-hmm. that. So, yeah. Um, we but, um, I, I, let's let's get to that before uh, right before spoilers. I, I have a lot to say about that, but yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah. So, but overall thoughts on uh, Incredibles too. Right. The other thing that I would mention is that I uh, rewatched the first Incredibles uh, right before seeing Incredibles 2. And if you haven't seen The Incredibles lately, I highly recommend doing that because yeah. this movie picks up pretty much the moment that movie ends, yeah. which is a, yeah, an yeah. interesting thing to do 14 years later. Um, but uh, I highly recommend doing that. I, I think you'll, you, it will enrich your, your experience of watching The Incredibles 2. Um, I agree with Matt that it is, I mostly liked it. I, I, it's a very crowd-pleasing, fun movie. It doesn't feel like a movie made for kids. It's, it, it's a movie about being an adult, mm-hmm. about very much late stage being an adult. It's a movie about uh, family in the same way that the first Incredibles was. But this one um, specifically, I think, is about a, a, a part of marriage that – uh, is, you know, you've been married for a while. Uh, this is, this is an interesting thing to do in, in a, what is ostensibly a children's film. There's enough fun silliness to, I think, entertain kids as Matt has, has noted, but, um, it is none of what it's talking about would resonate to kids at all. Um, but that's it, why there's so much Jack Jack, right? They love yes. the Jack Jack. They love the Jack Jack. Yeah, they do love the Jack Jack. Um, it also feels like a very old-fashioned film from its point of view, and I kind of bristled at that a little bit. Like the idea of this movie, the the core concept, which is built around a you know the breadwinner being the man, not comfortable with his wife being the one out doing all of the work stuff and him having to stay home, feels like a very 
antiquated notion uh, that doesn't seem as relevant today as it would have been, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. And and that was a little odd to me that the, the, the core theme of this movie doesn't even feel relevant anymore uh, in a lot large sense. I did relate a lot. That being said, I'll, I'll now contradict myself and say <laughs> I did relate a lot with the plight of uh, Mr. Incredible as he attempted to, uh, you know, care, care for all the children because I've, I'm in that situation now with my second child. Uh, my wife <laughs> was gone for an hour this weekend, uh, just an hour. And, uh, oh my God, all hell broke loose with a, uh, a almost two year old and, uh, almost two month old, uh, was, was n- nuts. Anyway, I related to that. You very took much. care of two kids by yourself for an hour. <laughs> Barely. How? Barely, Sorry. barely. Um, I will also say that the promise of this sequel, as delivered at the end of The Incredibles, is completely abandoned. Yeah. So the idea that The Incredibles ends with the family uniting and being a team and taking on bad guys, the movie abandons that almost immediately. Yep. And, it, you know, you mentioned that in the. Uh, in the IMDb description, it really just decides that that's not the movie it wants to be. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. the movie we were all excited to see is finally this whole family. And we even have a character say that at the beginning, like I thought we were going to fight crime as a family. And I found myself agreeing in the audience <laughs> and thinking, boy, that was what the fun thing was going to be uh, is seeing how this team, this family team is going to work. And we get this awesome action sequence at the beginning of the movie where that is that. And then the movie goes, no, we're not giving that to you at all. We're going to go off and do something else. Um, So I found that to be a little disappointing. But all of that said, it is a very entertaining film. I think the action sequences uh, are far superior than in the first film. And and maybe a lot of that just has to do purely with technology. Mm -hmm. Um, Rewatching the first Incredibles, by the way reminded me of how far we've come in oh, yeah. 15 years. Some of that movie looks rough. It, it, I, I not only that, it, but like, yeah, not ahead, only that, but, it, but it's also, uh, it was like, look, you can do a superhero movie in the big screen. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember watching the first Incredibles and going, this is how you do a superhero movie. It's animated because you can just show them doing the, using their powers all the time, you know? Um, and now that's just a trivial concept. Like we do, we already have, numerous superhero movies and they do use their powers all the time because you can yeah Um, i mean that was pre marvel cinematic universe do you know what i mean like that incredibles one came out before uh all this massive success that marvel's had so it it was like really different era when was it uh, pre-batman begins too i think uh batman begins release date was 2005 yeah so yeah it was a little bit before batman begins yeah it was competing with like daredevil <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that right. was the best exactly. we'd had in Electra. Point. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and I mean, it really Spider Man Two. Yeah, yeah, Spider Man Two. That's Spider Man Two is the same year as Incredibles. Yeah, that was a good year. I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. Blade, Blade. Don't forget Blade, nineteen ninety eight. So okay, <laughs> anyway. it certainly it certainly you know makes uh, almost makes a, a Fantastic Four movie redundant um, because it does all of that stuff that you would want from a Fantastic Four movie. I would say uh, the so new well. Fantastic Four movie made the Fantastic Four redundant, but okay. Um, <laughs> J- Devinder Hardwar, your thoughts on Incredibles two? Yeah, I mean, what else is there to say about this movie, right? I really liked it. Uh, I think I maybe liked it more than you guys. But yeah, it's not. it doesn't reach the heights of the first one. I think we can all agree with that. Um, but I found a lot to like with this, too. I love it when sequels pick up right from where the first movie left off. It was kind of bold to do that 15 years after 
that first movie. And uh, it does actually make a lot of sense that they didn't just go in with family, you know, being a superhero team uh, because they didn't actually solve the problem laid out in the first movie. Right. Superheroes are illegal and they are still illegal by the end of the first movie. And this movie is entirely about like, okay, well, how do we how do we kind of fix that? Because that's the bigger problem. And once we fix that, then, uh, you know, then maybe we can actually be superheroes as a family. So I bought why, you know, uh, Elastigirl does not want her kids to be doing this illegal thing. Um, they kind of did it out of necessity in the first movie and even uh, with that first action sequence. But it kind of it made sense to me on a, you know, on a character level why she didn't want them involved immediately. Um, but yeah, otherwise, like I loved everything about this film. I wish um, maybe if it had more time to cook. The themes of like what the the villain is actually trying to say would hit a little better because it's just kind of a it it makes sense and I think it's very appropriate for where we are today but they don't really build on it in any way um, you know having a villain who essentially is making a statement on technology um, yeah. at the same time I think the Mister Incredible stuff and like you know him you know finding the heroism in him just being a dad I found really compelling because they really double down on that. In ways that, yeah, I don't know if kids will appreciate, but I, you know, I found that really, really good and really interesting. And, uh, yeah, just have to say, like, the animation quality, you know, I love the first movie completely. But rewatching it uh, this week, it is kind of astounding just, like, how, like, some scenes just feel very basic, right? Like, there's nothing going on in the background, or there's, like, a very simple background, uh, you know, pattern or something like there. There are only there aren't as many scenes where there's a lot of things going on where the world seems alive, and this movie does that a lot better. Just because, uh, yeah, we, animation quality has jumped quite a bit. Uh, we can produce you know more detailed uh, you know 3D animation, and I really enjoyed the um, the action sequences here too. There's a lot of really inventive stuff. I won't say anything until we get to spoilers, but there's one like one gadget in particular I thought was like, oh, I, I've never seen that before. And that totally fits with this character and her powers. So overall, you know, really good time. Uh, I took my family to see it too, and they really enjoyed it. So that it, that feels like exactly what this movie is for. It is a good, you know, it's a good family, you know, get together in the theater. And it's also incredibly well made, and you know, something you don't see as often anymore. We should mention that this movie killed it at the box office this weekend. Mm-hmm. It, it made over 180 million dollars at the box office. Uh, that is. $110 million more than Incredibles 1 made at the box office when it first debuted 15 years ago. So uh, this is going to be this year's Finding Dory. I think it's heading for probably over $400 million. Has mm. the potential to actually beat Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, depending on how well Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom does. So I think uh, it, it, it is... Summer movie wager ramifications <laughs> abound. Yeah, it's going to be... The implications are, are staggering to behold. Um, but, uh, okay... My thoughts, and then let's dive into spoilers. I want to hear, we have a lot more to talk about. Um, so here, here's what I will say about Incredibles 2. The experience of watching the movie is a lot better than the experience of thinking about the movie. And what I mean by that is I saw uh, Jesse from uh, AV Club tweet the following about Incredibles 2. Uh, he's rock marooned on Twitter. He says... Uh, quote, I certainly didn't find Incredibles 2 as interesting or challenging thematically as its predecessor, but as a superhero action movie, it cooks. Bird is just set-piece shaming the damn world, end quote. Mm-hmm. And I just, I love that description of Incredibles 2, that it cooks. It's true. Dude, this movie freaking cooks. Like, it is, uh, the, the, uh, it, there's probably four 
big action set pieces in this film, and every mm-hmm. single one is awesome. There's one in the middle. I'm not even going to say what it's about, but like it is so inventive. And uh, like when I heard about the premise, like you learn about the premise of the action scene, and I'm like, I don't know that that's going to be that interesting. And then they make it extremely fun and exciting and inventive, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, that that I want to go back to the movie theater just so I can see that scene again. You know, uh, it is. It is just a lot of fun to watch. It's a really entertaining, enjoyable experience in the theater. Uh, but, but I think that the, there are so many ideas in this film that are just completely half baked. And I think thematically, it's extremely similar to the first film. Like a lot of material is retread from the first movie. Um, and I'll just say that overall, the theme is we should let super people be super. You know, that's the theme of the first film. It's the theme of this film. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I found it, you know, to be quite um, dispiriting when I watched the first film recently. You know, Matt Singer, you and I recently talked about this, but I had this tweet, uh, Twitter storm the other day where I basically said uh, that, I, I, you know, Incredibles 1 is one of my favorite Pixar films, one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, but every time I watch it, I'm always struck by how mean-spirited it is, and specifically with how it handles syndrome. And uh, and I actually think like the Incredibles in many ways are the villains of that story. And uh, ScreenCrush.com published a uh, YouTube uh, video this week about how yeah, syndrome is a hero, and and the Incredibles are the villains of of the story, and argues very convincingly that that's the case. Uh, and I think, yeah, the, the first Incredibles is thematically messy, but I think at least there is a, a, a coherent uh, sort of point of view there. And Incredibles 2, I feel like, just does a very similar thing in terms of what it's trying to say, but adds in a bunch of new half-baked ideas that never really pay off, in my opinion. So I think that uh, it's a much more mixed bag, Incredibles 2, um, I feel like. You know, we'll talk a little bit more about this in spoilers, but there's just a bunch of like themes introduced that are never really brought to where I feel like they need to go for it to really be satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a, as a movie experience, yeah. it's great. So I feel like we can dive deeper into that in spoilers yep. because yeah, we've we've talked about like the the exceptionalism being yep. promoted in the first movie. I actually think this one kind of dials that back a little. I, I think it's a little more realistic and a little more. Um, the first movie felt like, oh man, these superheroes are so great and these dumb people, uh, outlawed them because they're so dumb. Uh, whereas this movie is like, you know, that is, you're kind of reckoning with that, but also, uh, man, uh, how, how much money is the government spending to, uh, fix all the damage being caused by some of the superheroes or something like that? Like, I I think there's a better balance. Right, right. Like it it makes an economic argument against superheroes in this film. So it's just like, Um, yeah, yeah, a very pragmatic one. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, before we get to spoilers for Incredibles 2, let's talk about Bao, the short film that played in front of Incredibles 2. Uh, I will just say that um, I wept openly <laughs> during this movie. <laughs> I think as it really spoke to my – it's about this uh, these Asian parents who are empty nesters. And one day the mom uh, is making a dumpling and uh or a shaolong bao and the the dumpling comes to life uh and then she kind of takes care of it as her kid and it is a really weird short film uh i think <laughs> it's th- disturbing on a number of levels it's disturbing and weird i think um i was listening to an interview with the director and she was saying that when she was a kid 
her mom once said to her, like, oh, I wish, you know, you're so cute. I could just eat you up. Like, I wish I could just eat you. you, so my, you could... my wife says that constantly to our kids. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could just eat you so you could be in my belly yeah. again and I Premise would know where you are all the time. Yeah. Right? And uh, that is a very weird uh, <laughs> sentiment. And, and this short film is an attempt to explore that sentiment. Uh, Matt Singer, what, what did you think of the short film? Did you, did you find it touching? I did. I I enjoyed it a lot. It seems like the people are. I mean, are we allowed to spoil the, the short film, or should I? I, I not would not. I would not spoil the short film. Maybe. I guess maybe we should have done this in spoilers. But yeah, do, do not spoil the short film if you can. I I mean, it, uh, it seems like people are kind of split in terms of what they think of the movie regarding um, the, the 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 climactic act in it and mm. whether they find it shocking and kind of funny and meaningful or shocking and horrifying. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I sort of fell in the former camp and I, I really enjoyed the short and, uh, you know, there was stuff in there that I could relate to as well. I, I think it, it kind of some of the stuff in there crosses cultural boundaries and uh, I thought it was beautifully animated. I thought the the dumpling baby, I don't know that he, he has a name, but I feel like um, if Disney doesn't have like stuffed versions of him, like in all their stores right now, they're like. They're missing out on a huge amount of money they could be making because he's incredibly adorable, and I feel like they would they would sell many dumpling baby stuffed animals. But yeah, I I, I thought it was one of the better Pixar shorts in a long time. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was very good. Yeah, this idea of um, the, the relationship between parents and their kids, and particularly for immigrant parents, I think it's like a it's like a it's a, a unique kind of. Uh, anxiety that that immigrant parents have because not only is your kid kind of going out into the world, um, but they're going out into the world in this completely foreign environment uh, yeah. that is unlike anything that you know the the immigrant parent has grown up in. And so there's all this like this extra layer of anxiety about like what they're doing and who they're meeting and who they're spending time and how they're spending time. You know that I think is brought to life wonderfully in the in the short film. Any other thoughts, uh, Jeff? Yeah, I, I I thought I found it amazing. I, I thought particularly the tech on display of food preparation mm. was extraordinary. I mean, the gooiness, the sort of malleability of just of watching the hand create the dumplings was right there. I was just blown away. Um, but also, yeah, it's it's beautiful, and I love the fact you know here here we have had. A number of these Pixar shorts before the movies, and they are all of a certain kind of of heartwarming tale. And I've loved ninety nine percent of them. I, I I am a fan of just the concept of doing these shorts, and most of them are do really feel like they're labors of love and from the heart. But most of them are like that little bird from whatever the last movie was. The little bird that wants to go in the water and then it's t- it's scared of the water and then it goes in the water. You know, it, they're they're very um tame. Safe. You know what I mean? Right. Safe. Great, better word. Yeah. Uh and this the fact that this movie has this kind of shocking moment to it, I just loved that move. I loved that willingness to do that to an audience that's there to see the Incredibles too. Yeah, like my, my audience cool... gasped, you know, during this. I, I gasped. <laughs> it's a, it's a gasp worthy moment. It is a, it's shocking and abrupt and 
you don't expect a, a nice, sweet little short like that to go there. And it, it's it, it it's cool how it can put an audience in that place and then pull them out of that place. And you realize what all of that meant. And it's just really expertly done. And also, as you said, very touching and, uh, and moving. It's, I really was, was impressed by it very much. Any other thoughts to video before we move on? No, I loved it. It was certainly surprising. Um, and also I was hearing some people just outright hating this ahead of seeing the movie too. So it is, it's fascinating to me that, you know, there can be such of a divisive response to this. Like, there, there's so much going on here that there wasn't in something like, uh, what was it, Lava? The uh, the, the volcano oh one God. that we all hate? Or I like hate. Lava. Oh, man. <laughs> like, this this is exactly <laughs> like, this is the anti-Lava, and I'm very happy about that. How dare you? How dare you? Uh, Dude, I, as I was sitting there watching this, I thought to myself, Oh, the ramifications of what this means for Dave and the the dis, this <laughs> very uh, disturbing uh, meaning for Look, guys. For let's it. just say, let's just say it. Let's just say it. Okay, mm. there is a scene where the mom uh, is chilling out with her bow son, who's yeah. like a dumpling, right? An anthropomorphized dumpling, and they go to the dumpling shop and they buy dumplings and eat dumplings. Yeah. <laughs> it's like dumpling cannibalism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, re- cannibalism. It's really, really disturbing. I was very, I'm, I'm still bothered by it, even a day later, as I'm talking to you guys right now. So, yeah. uh, but I agree with I you guys that it's, a, it's dumpling ch- has the poten- If every dumpling has the potential of becoming a a, a baby, uh, cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria. <laughs> It's uh, there's a lot that's challenging about it. There's a lot that's unique about it. It's directed by I think Domi Lee, who is the first uh, woman to direct a Pixar uh, short film, and so I think uh, it is worth checking out and and supporting. And I think it's uh, uh, <laughs> one of the better and more interesting Pixar shorts. So uh, okay, let's dive into spoilers for The Incredibles two starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. There's a lot about this movie that I felt was implausible. Uh, the first film has Mr. Incredible going to work for an eccentric billionaire... Uh, and that ends up going really badly for everyone mm-hmm. involved. So we do that the day after. Yeah. Uh, so the day that. after, it's like, hey, another eccentric billionaire wants you to uh, work for him. Yeah. Um, and so let's do that. Like that's no no pro- no possible downside with that. This theme of like this extremely theoretically benevolent character then becoming non benevolent has become. Mm-hmm. Fairly predictable in Pixar films. Oh my god! I, I mean, the moment you meet the, that brother <laughs> and sister, you're like, "Well, one of these guys going to turn out to be the villains." Yeah, yeah. You know? It's uh, it's not just in Pixar, or not just in The Incredibles. I mean, there's another gigantic movie coming out this month that has a very similar hmm. structure. All right, um, Iron Man. Where a, like a, yeah. what what a very you know a seemingly benevolent. And the more benevolent they seem, the more evil you know they must <laughs> yeah. be. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, incredibly wealthy person sends the hero on a uh, mission of mercy, and then it turns out to all be evil. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting very sick of that that uh, 
in a lot of movies. Yeah, See, I, that one needs to be retired for a while. I was watching uh, Bob Chipman's review. He's Movie Bob on YouTube, and he said, "Huh, two characters where only one would be sufficient. I wonder what's going on there. You know, like, <laughs> like yeah. there's no reason that needs to be two characters unless one of them is going to betray the other one or something like that." Um, so I did think that was kind of telegraphing, uh, telegraphing what happened at the end. Um, let me ask you guys about this. This is a really interesting decision to me. The opening of this film. I kept thinking about, like, why would you open the film that way, right? The film yeah. opens with uh, the uh, dude. What's his name? Some, Tony Reidinger. Tony Reidinger getting his memory erased. Uh, I yeah. thought it was a really, like, kind of dark opening for the movie. Yeah. And um, I, I realized afterwards, like, the reason – I think the reason they put that there was because there's no other place that scene could go in the film where it wouldn't completely right. destroy the flow of the film, right? Yeah. Um, but I, yeah. like, thematically, do you feel like the, that is a good opening for the film? Well, like, it, does, yeah. it, it does remind us, like, hey, by the way, this happened at the end of the last movie. It is that. It serves that purpose. Of, yeah, like, no, remember, no, I saw this girl, and then this thing happened, and that was so crazy. So it's kind of, it it's kind of like a primer up, for, for, the, yeah. for the first film, right? It, yeah. it was previously, like previously uh, on yeah, previously The Incredibles. On. Yeah, exactly. But what's funny is that they used the memory wipe machine, which was only in like the, uh, the Jack-Jack attack short. Mm. So if you hadn't seen that, yeah, it's not in the original film. Uh, it's kind of like Men in Blackish. But they comment um, on it in the original film. Yes, he says, oh, I've had to... Yeah, I've had to remove memories yeah. of all these people. Yeah, yeah. And it's right. worth going back and watching that Jack Jack attack thing. It's a that lot is of a fun. deep cut uh, in the it Incredibles is. universe. But th- they use that memory machine on the babysitter, if I recall correctly, right? Yeah, on the babysitter. Yeah. And then you see, like in the movie, you get the, her calls, like her frantic calls about the baby. And in that short, you see like what she dealt with, what she went through. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So here, here's another question, gentlemen, which is, um, uh, and this, I think, really sums up how the movie kind of blows it when it comes to some of the broader themes and, and arcs, is uh, what happened with the Underminer? <laughs> like, they just yeah. completely this massive action set piece, and mm-hmm. then the, the character is never even referenced again ever in the film, right? Right. Uh, I, I think like the movie, like there's there's literally a scene in this film where two characters are just saying the themes of the movie at each other. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Elastigirl and uh, Miss Deaver are just talking, and they're like, "But what's better, being a good salesman or being a good ideas?" You know, it's just like, what yeah. what is what is going on here? Like it, 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 the, the 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 movie kind of introduces these ideas, but does nothing to pay them off. Screen Slaver is another great example of. You, you have this character who has introduced this idea of uh, we are all slaves to our, our TV screens. And, and there's this really beautifully, you know, quote-unquote shot and edited sequence where Elastigirl is trying to find Screenslaver while Screenslaver is monologuing about how you watch superhero films because you are weak. Um, and because you prefer a simulated reality as opposed to real reality. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, this is really getting to me. But the movie does nothing, in my opinion – to set up a rival viewpoint to that. It doesn't say like, oh, no, like, like shared stories bring us together. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's what The Incredibles are all about. You know, like it does nothing other than the meta idea of seeing the movie itself. It does nothing to, to kind of set an opposing view to Screenslaver. Matt, what do you, what do you think of that, um, the villain Screenslaver, the ideas behind it, the execution, your thoughts? Well, I, I felt like the, the scene you're talking about with that monologue is sort of, 
kind of cheeky, subversive fun because you have this villain um, talking about, you know, like how people are enslaved to not just their screens, but he's talking – it's basically like this anti-corporate, anti-capitalist, anti-consumer rant from, you know, the biggest entertainment (laughs) conglomerate on the planet, which is – it's sort of cute, I guess. Um, To me – you know, when you talk about well, where's the alternative viewpoint? I would, I would think, and uh, ideally, the alternative viewpoint is just how entertaining uh, the film is and enjoying the film. Um, and I guess the other, uh, the other way to look at it would be the screenslaver is talking about how super, you know, the superness of these super people that they are superior and they're we want them to take care of us and. Uh, we, you know, like, and they let us be, I don't know, slaves or whatever. It, it isn't entirely coherent. But what you see in the movie is the superheroes are not super, quote unquote. Like the whole like, point of The Incredibles is that these are ordinary people. Their their problems are m- mostly mundane. Um, you know, there, yes, there is the, the screen slaver, but Mr. Incredible, I don't think wears his costume after the first scene, like until the very last scene of the mm-hmm. movie. Like he his problems are getting the kids on the bus to school, learning how to teach his son math, uh, you know, keeping up with a baby who refuses to sleep. And yes, all of their the, like there are superheroic elements to all of these plot threads. You know, uh, like Violet rejecting or renouncing superheroes or whatever it is, but you could easily cut around those or remove those and make this just a story about a mom on a business trip and a dad who's dealing with three uh, kids who are all having issues. Like they're not um, mythic uh, Promethean gods. They are ordinary people who have powers, and I think the idea is that all of us – uh, uh, in our own way, are sort of uh, are, are super heroic in our own lives just by doing the things we do. You know, there's the other, perhaps a little proscriptive line where uh, uh, the what's her name, the fashion designer says, you know, done properly, being a parent is a heroic act, which is pretty mm-hmm. on the nose, but I think is definitely what the movie is trying to express. So, pretty good, Edna. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty good, good Edna, Edna mode impression. That. Thank you. Very nice. Thank you. Oh, Edna, yeah, I couldn't remember. I don't remember things anymore. That's uh <laughs> that's another that's another fun part about having two small children. So, yeah, that that to me would be the the sort of the other if you're looking for the rebuttal. Mm. I think it's you're you're sort of on the one hand complaining about some of the very on the nose commentary in the film, and you're not wrong about that, but then I would say the rebuttal is more subtle and you're complaining that it's not more on the nose. Yes. I, I would agree. I would agree too. Like it's, a, I don't think it has to explicitly say what the counter argument is because you know this person is wrong. Like you know her her methodology and everything. It's like the Black Panther thing. Uh, you know, Killmonger has a point. He has a really good point, and that movie supports both the good and the bad. But also, you know, you know his actions through his actions. Yeah, I, this character is you know the villainy yeah. comes from the fact that they take these ideas and take them way too yeah. far and do terrible things in the furtherance of those ideas, but that the ideas themselves aren't necessarily without merit, right? Um, I just think that they, they whiffed on on the... There seemed like they set up a really interesting villain that comments on parenthood, mm-hmm. on uh, screens and the kind of yeah. challenge of, of raising kids in a world of screens, and they just completely whiff on that. There's There's no interest in having that discussion, even though they set it up. Instead, they invent... This completely uninteresting, irrelevant thing about these two – this brother and sister whose dad was killed. Like, yeah. Which, like, by the way, the dumbest plot line. To, yeah. Why do we care to about me the, 
how the dad met his demise and whether his yeah. phone worked or didn't work like that. N- well, none of me, that is irrelevant. I think I thought, I thought to me the, 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 the origin was just sort of riffing on, uh, on, you know, the Batman origin story right, right. and the idea that eventually one of them becomes the villain is sort of like, you know, the Batman origin can turn someone into a hero or a villain. I thought the bigger problem with the screen slaver character is and in terms of missed potential although the one about parenting is a good point as well that i hadn't really thought about was you have i think it's a fascinating idea for a bad guy uh and a and a, and a character that can comment on our modern life and the problem is the movie is set in the mid 1960s roughly when there's no cell phones and so the only way to depict people being enslaved to their screens is having people standing around like old timey uh, <laughs> yeah. department stores where yeah. they're staring at displays of televisions, which not to say that people aren't enslaved to their televisions, but like to me, the missed opportunity is you're making a movie about how people, modern life is so consumed with these screens that are rotting our minds and you can't really take full advantage of it because you've made like a period piece where no one has a cell phone. So to me, it was I mean, like. But you're a, in a you're in a super universe where there's technology that can't exist. I mean, I think there's yeah. ways to get around that problem. I, they, I just think for, that they're, they're uninterested they in it. Yeah, they. But you're right. They could have theoretically. Why not give people cell phones? Right. My point is they don't. They didn't. And so the right. most interesting thing you could do, like combining our ideas here, it's like why not have Violet be obsessed with her cell phone and then right. become enthralled to the screen slaver or whatever it is. A hundred percent. Like I hate 100%. to tell a movie what to do, but like these are. You're right. These are like really rich potential ideas that would have, I think, taken better advantage of the. The, the premise that they have that they they I, I totally agree they don't really fully exploit. Yeah, and instead you just have this character who uh, is for non supers or regular people uh, trying to make it on their own, trying to defend themselves and make a good life for themselves without the help of supers, uh, being portrayed as the horrifying villain character who wants to you know kill lots of people. Just one more thing I wanted to say about this because I you know I thought your your tweets about how syndrome is like the you know i don't know the tragic hero or just uh, <laughs> the victim or however you want to put it in the first film and you know generally you know and people have ascribed all these different political viewpoints to Brad Bird and you know to the stuff about being super and all that the thing that i i don't know that i don't i feel like is in here that people don't talk about enough even while acknowledging that I totally see, you know, like I thought Dave's tweets were really funny and on the nose and, and on point, and we did the video on our YouTube channel about this too, is just like the villains who are espousing these theories are incredibly exceptional in their own way. Like they're right. incredible inventors. That's the part that I, maybe the movies do need to be a little more explicit about is they're complaining that, you know, oh, I want more people to be super. I Why aren't, you know, like people need to be yada 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 and it's like well but you just created rocket boots you've created the most <laughs> incredible uh, miniaturized camera technology that's ever existed like why they don't seem to recognize their own superness and i'm not sure if this is a, a deliberate choice that that we as the audience are maybe not fully exploring on our own or it's a bug where it's not made explicit enough i don't know but i feel like that's that's like the, the the missing element of this equation that hasn't been fully kind of teased out and written about and thought about enough. I, I the super was, was inside you all along. Mm. I just thought it was fascinating that like we had a more engagement with these themes in Captain America: Civil War 
than we did in these movies that are very much about that topic. I mean, in Captain America Civil War, there's this big debate about, oh, should superheroes, or whatever their you know, term is in, in those movies, like, should they be allowed to just do whatever they want or should we regulate them somehow? And the question of whether they should be regulated tears the Avengers apart. Uh, in some ways, and I, you know, like the, the, it could have been done better in that film as well. But I think, like, like at least it addressed it, and I felt like it uh, attempted to address it in an even-handed way. And I feel like these movies are just so simplistic in how they um, they attempt to take it on. That basically, like, yeah, if you're super, you should just continue being super. Like that's that is the overriding message in both the films, and. I, I just don't find it particularly uh, interesting, you know, because I think it's much more complicated than that. But anyway, um, enough about my complaints about the movie. Guys, uh, I think the the train action sequence was pretty yeah. amazing. So awesome. Uh, so and, like, the motorcycle that detaches. Like, I didn't think that mo- that scene would be that interesting. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. she's got to stop a train. How good could this be? But... Man, you know, her navigating through the city at light speed and then like breaking apart the bike and it just was so good. It was yeah. like attach yeah. two wheels to a rubber band and imagine all the possibilities. Yeah. It's, it's that's it really runs with that and like, oh, she can fling herself and use herself as a sort of slingshot and all of that stuff. It just it was so inventive and cool. This, the part where it gets in the tunnel and she's like riding on either side of the the walls of the tunnel. It's just awesome. There was um, yeah, I, the, when the, when the bike she just think, like at one point she just throws the bike into the mountain and it blows up and I was like oh my gosh no the bike yeah, wh- it's so good why would you do that why would you do why that? why would yeah. you do that we're never going to see that bike again film just about the bike yeah we just want yeah. a movie if of, the bike a spinoff I I like that scene when she also introduces the bike and she's like I used to have a mohawk and he's like what she's like you didn't miss <laughs> yeah. anything <laughs> yeah. that was uh, uh, yeah great touch. I w- what I was going to say was, you know, you can uh, say, well, they set up all these ideas and they don't really pay them off or they don't fully exploit them. The thing in this movie to me was, in terms of the actions, was like every time they introduced something interesting in terms of a power or a gadget or whatever, it was – you got to see it in action. Like the train chase sequence is a good example. And the other one to me was the – I think uh, – is it Void, the character, who has the yeah. portal oh, power? So like, cool is so cool and the way that it's um shot and 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 used in the movie to i don't know they they really you could feel like sort of the pixar magic of like brainstorming every interesting thing you could do with this portal power and and that you couldn't do in live action or would be so much more difficult like there's that amazing shot of dash running through the portals and it, you see like the, it's like the double mirror going on forever yeah, shot, yeah, yeah. you know, where you're standing in like a changing room and there's two mirrors and it looks like there's a million of you, like, and the camera is like following him through the portals and they just keep going on through infinity. Like that shot is so cool. And then the thing at the end where she's using the portals to kind of launch uh, Elastigirl onto the dev tech uh, plane as it's escaping and she has to kind of keep doing it over and over again. Cause they keep missing. Yeah. Uh, she has to manage the velocity while yeah. Yeah. The portal, like it's all just so good. 
like there i mean in this world where there are so many superhero movies it is hard to do something really mm-hmm. exciting and and unique and where you see i don't think i've seen that before in a movie well right? uh, just i mean quick shout out to that is basically an x-men superpower days of future <laughs> past that opening fight sequence is for is portal fight i feel like it's done better here it is certainly far. done better here Way i'm just better. saying like yeah. you can do more because it's cg and the camera can go anywhere right. uh, but i think back to like that you know, really great opening sequence of Days of Future Past. Yeah, that was pretty um, good. Yeah. Just the just the shot, just the simple thing of Elastigirl stretching her arm out into a punch, mm-hmm. opening a portal, and then opening another one so she punches herself. Mm. Just like so clever and yeah. awesome. Well, I love action sequences where there's just so much going on, right? Like you just, you really, you got to rewatch it because there's more action going on than you can consume in one viewing. Uh, that train sequence is going to be one, that big fight. Um, also like a, a lot of the Jack Jack stuff I just love too. like by the point where you have Jack Jack at the end and seeing they just have so much fun with these powers. And if you have one character who has like 18 powers, uh, they kind of just really go, go all out with it. Let, let me ask you guys this. Let me ask, you know, I'm, I'm on a podcast with two fathers and one father to be, um, uh, let me ask you, did you find the Jack Jack stuff resonated with you from the perspective of, uh, at any point, your kid g- could do something that kills himself or something ridiculous like that. Like oh, yeah. that, that's 100%. like the I think the subtext of that is like this kid can like do transdimensional teleportation, mm-hmm. but really it's very similar to the just the act of having a regular kid um, mm-hmm. who could go off at any moment by himself or something. Oh, oh yeah, kid, kids kids really want to kill themselves. They <laughs> they work really <laughs> hard at it. It's aston it's astonishing how desperately they want to they 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 they, they welcome the embrace of death. It's, a, it's an uncanny how much of my life is spent just trying not to m- let my children kill themselves. It's mm. it's unbelievable. Mm, so yeah. yeah, I mean there's a lot I mean Jack Jack in this movie I thought was like uh terrific. I mean, he's one of the parts of the first movie that actually I think is definitely improved here because he's yeah. barely in the first movie. Yeah. And, you know, he's sort of used as a punchline in the ending where you suddenly see that he has the powers, and that's a great moment. But in this movie, um, he gets to do a lot of stuff. And the thing with the raccoon is kind of goofy and silly and probably would, would have been better off as its own short film because it seems kind of – it's like it is kind of its own short film in the middle of the movie. Mm-hmm. But all the stuff with him driving the father insane um, – yeah, really resonates with me because I have a, a, a daughter. The, my, my youngest is just under Jack-Jack's age and looks a lot like Jack-Jack. Like it's weird almost how much she looks like Jack-Jack. You and, probably shouldn't have her wear the mask so much. Well, she's not like uh, and, and has this, you know, devilish gr- – the devilish grin when she's you know, refuses to sleep and, you know, sticking things in her mouth that she knows she shouldn't and – uh, I thought I thought Jack Jack was almost like the MVP of this movie in a lot of ways. He's he's really great. Mm-hmm. Totally Je- agree. Jeff, yeah. any thoughts? I mean, my that? my son's name is Jack, uh, and he uh, you know attempts to, as Matt so eloquently said, attempts to you know do the most dangerous thing at any given moment, uh, trying actively to die, and uh, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, just the idea the idea of the 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 wonderful almost metaphor of Jack Jack like phasing through a door and getting outside. <laughs> I feel like my son has that power sometimes. <laughs> How the hell did you even get out there? I just <laughs> I looked away for one second. You know, yeah. That's a it's a it's yeah it's great. There is a scene in this movie that I thought was pretty hilarious. To change the topic a little bit, uh, where they meet all the like uh, Elastigirl meets all the supers that are in hiding. 
And it reminded me of this thing that I heard on the director's commentary for the movie Sunshine by Danny Boyle. If you guys have seen that movie Sunshine, where uh-huh. uh, they are sending, they sent a crew to kind of fix the sun, and then that crew never came back. So they're sending a second crew to fix the sun, and. Um, and that's the crew that you're following through the course of the movie. And Danny Boyle was saying, oh, yeah, they're sending, like, the best people in the world. Well, actually, they're sending the <laughs> second best people in the world because they would have sent the best people the first time. And uh, it reminded me, like, oh, these are all, like, the B team kind of people in yeah. that they're, they're meeting because all the A team people were killed in the first Incredibles, right? <laughs> that's uh, right. Like, yeah. it, like uh, Syndrome, like, there's a whole scene where they're, like, reviewing all the people that Syndrome killed. And these are, yeah. those are, like, top of the top, like, everyone but knows But I guess who those he's still are. the victim, Dave, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yep, pretty much. Um, I, but it, it just yeah, it was, like, these are just, like, a hilarious... Uh, diverse mix of powers like the reflux guy i mean that is truly a horrifying character you know <laughs> like i have acid reflux and like the idea of a character who can like spit acid and stuff like and it looks it just the way it's rendered on screen just looks horrifying and disgusting um i i found it to be like kind of unintentionally amusing like these are like the super like the b team supers i felt like mm-hmm. Um, I was yes. I, I kind of went off spinning in my head about what are the rules of the crushers' powers? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because like, what is the definition of crushing something? Are you able to crush anything? Like, well, what, he what can't is really going on things, there? Right. Like, I love that they had that conversation. Yeah. Have yeah. you been ever asked to unpunch something? What? <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. The it, it, at Pixar they call those characters. I don't think they're ever referred to that way in the in the movie, but. They're, they were called the the uh, the wannabes. That was mm. their informal name for that group in at Pixar. I did a little tour of Pixar uh, at, before the movie was released, uh, like the the junket uh, for the film at Pixar, and and they they mentioned that. The other fun tidbit that they mentioned about those guys that you wouldn't you would never know, but uh, they told us was that the there's the guy who has like electricity powers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, amongst that group, that character was originally the originally the 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 uh, the Dever characters, the brother and sister was supposed to be two brothers, mm. not a brother and a sister. And so that the, the design of the electricity guy, that was the other brother. They reused the, they when they got rid of that character or when they changed it to the uh, the the Catherine Keener character, they uh, used the like the un the unused design of the brother and made it that super superhero. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just hey, cool. By the way, shout out to the Catherine Keener character. I thought she did a great job as being the sort of like really, I don't know, uh, inspiring person as well and kind of seductive and then justifiably, you know, angry and evil by the end. And I love the design of her character too. Like they just, there's a lot more, you know, it shows they can do a lot more with hair right now in this movie compared to the first one. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite bits of animation in the film was when you first are introduced to that character. Uh, and mm-hmm. she, she comes in and bumbles. She in. comes in. Yeah. She has like fifteen schematics on her blueprints yep. and stuff on her. Uh, probably all the like evil masks and stuff that she's going to make for um, screensaver, as it were. Uh, mm-hmm. And just her stumbling and like dropping everything. I just thought, oh my god! Like what a what a human moment that they were able to capture in that one one bit of animation. Did you guys real like? Did the theme of like the brother and sister and what they represented did that resonate with you? You already shot down my other complaint, Matt Singer, about like uh, <laughs> screenslaver and like. Uh, first of all, I, I, here here's the ultimate conflict, Matt. Is 
I think basically in any Incredibles film, of which there's probably going to be another one based on how well this one did, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to sympathize more with the villain than the protagonist. <laughs> I think that's just <laughs> – I need to accept that about myself. But that being yes. said, I'm curious um, if you – uh, if the theme of the two of them, like what they represented, resonated with you at all? Like, there's theoretically this conflict around, like, um, I mean, big picture, the conflict between we should let supers handle our problems and no, we shouldn't. But also this idea of like her brother being like the salesperson and her being like the ideas person. And I think there's like there is conversation about like what is what is more valuable. Like, did that resonate with? Like, did did you take any, away any lessons from that at all? Like, what, what were your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, not particularly, I, I guess that would be another area where I felt the movie was a little kind of underdeveloped. I think part of it is that it is, you know, they're doing it as a mystery, so you don't know who the bad guy is, so they don't really want to give anything away. And so they have to kind of play their cards close to their vest. And you have to believe that the brother and sister are on the same page the whole time and working together until you discover at the end that, that she's been manipulating everything all along. I guess the only thing that really resonated with me was just the idea that they are a family mm. and just like the Incredibles are a family. And so you have a, uh, you know, you have another family to, dynamic to explore in this case, a family that's been sort of torn apart by tragedy or at least kind of uh, broken by tragedy. And this is their attempt to um, respond to it by, by you know trying to drum up public interest for the supers but again some of that is kind of undercut by the eventual revelation that one of them has been working against the the plot the whole time i do think it's kind of and, and again this is something that you could potentially make more interesting if it wasn't a mystery and you could really kind of delve into the characters hating each other would be like if there was like a sibling rivalry here where it's right. like really like one of the one of them really wants to make supers legal and the other ones will like screw you i'm gonna do everything i can to destroy your plan which i could absolutely like that's kind of really interesting is to have like a brother and sister you know fi- squabbling via superheroes but um you know the movie doesn't doesn't really do anything with that mm-hmm. well and even, she and subsumes think- she subsumes that uh feeling yeah. In herself, uh, in order to play a really, really long game of destroying his plan. She plays right? the smarter, yeah. Right. She's the smarter <laughs> but one, even, so she does that. Even at yeah. the end of the movie, even at the end of the movie, when they're like, she's going to have to go to jail, he's, you know, he's he's so upbeat. He's just like, well, she's alive. That's good. That's great. <laughs> I have a good feeling. Like, he's so, you, 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 they're sort of upending the same cliche we talked about where we were joking about how the incredibly nice guy who we you know it turns out to be evil in his case he's the incredibly nice guy you think is evil but actually it's sister and he really is just an incredibly upbeat nice guy and there there wasn't a lot of a lot more to that character that uh you know they could have they could have potentially done more with him and with that with that uh rivalry but again it's like it's uh there's only so much you can do, right? In uh, in an incredible. I'd movie, rather perhaps. spend more time with the uh, with the Parr family than those right. two. So there's that. Uh, one thing we should mention, by the way, is uh, is the bright light strobing thing, uh, the issue that's been called out. Uh, at my screening, there was a hand drawn sign, uh, you know, right in the door saying, you know, there is a sequence of bright lights and flashing imagery in this movie, and be aware. Um, that's something I haven't seen. In a you know big Hollywood film to this extent, um, if you don't know, that's the sort of thing. If you have um, if you if you have epilepsy or you are vulnerable to seizures or anything like that, this sort of imagery can 
trigger a seizure. And that's very bad. And it's crazy to see that, you know, a, a huge sequence, there's a fight sequence in this movie that is happening in a bright flashing room. Um, so you're trying to track that choreography. Meanwhile, your eyes are just getting overloaded with this flashing light. Um, it is crazy that nobody at Disney saw this as a problem because anybody who remembers the nineties, uh, there was an episode of Pokemon that, uh, kind of tr uh, triggered seizures with kids in Japan. And since then, uh, ever since then, every anime show and I think any anime movie, I think in movies they just avoid it, but in anime shows, if there's a bright light sequence, uh, the screen just darkens by like 50%. They just go all the way, just so nobody will have any issues with it. Uh, but I, what did you guys think of that whole thing? It's a cool moment, man. It's a really it's a cool awesome moment. sequence. Yeah. But yeah, it's very surprising that that Disney wouldn't uh, shy away from doing something like that, especially how um, rampant that problem is. It's yeah, not I, got, a small I got anxiety problem. watching it because both because a it's a very tense scene, but also because I was like, oh my gosh, like. I can see this having a really negative effect on on some people who have uh, problems with that. Um, Extraordinarily cool moment, though, man. Like I've never really seen that in a 3D animated. It, the whole thing goes really flat looking, and uh -huh. it, it it it's a really um, striking concept of this. You know, this sort of. Uh, EDM <laughs> rave room <laughs> that goes wild in the middle of an action sequence. Uh, I thought that was pretty pretty cool, but yeah, yeah it's it's problematic for sure. Scared uh, the heck out of my daughter. <laughs> that was definitely the one scene that she was like covering her eyes mm. and not because she has uh, epilepsy. That was a, it's a spooky yeah. scene. Yeah. And just uh, because of that, um, I was chatting with uh, Mikey Newman, uh, you know, from Mikey, the movies on Twitter and you know, he, he can't see the movie in theaters now, basically. Uh, wow. He'll have to wait for home video. That's a, it, it is kind of a serious issue. I'm just surprised nobody at Disney kind of was like, "Hey, uh, maybe, maybe not like this." Maybe yeah, they're, do it they're like letting different. theater. They're also letting theater owners like take the hit too. You know, like yeah, yeah. I, I saw a sign at my theater too that was like printed out by the theater thing, like, "Hey, FYI, there's a sequence of the blah blah blah," and it's like it feels like Disney should be taking more of the lead on this. Uh, you could put like a warning before the film, for instance. You know, like. Um, there, there's other things they could do, or not even have like completely changed Screenslaver's whole aesthetic. You know, that's another yeah. thing you could do. Well, I, um, I mean, and the thing with the digital distribution too, can't they push updates to the movie yes. after it's been released? Yes. So like, like it seems like there, there could be like a brightness or a gamma or some sort of like change you could do, but I don't know if that, how much work that would require too. Yeah. 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 Um, I want to return to one thing that Matt Singer said just, uh, as we, as we wrap up here, one, uh, about, like screensaver's whole plan i just felt like the ending was kind of a little ridiculous uh given how simplistically we are expected to believe the the american people will behave the idea is oh hey all we got to do is show superheroes doing good things and then everyone's going to be on board with the whole superhero thing that's that's like yeah. bob odenkirk's yeah. plan right so then at the end of the movie, you have a nationwide broadcast, theoretically, with quote-unquote ambassador so-and-so of what we are never explained, you know? And yeah. um, and the uh, you see the superheroes being like, hey, uh, we're going to go kill you guys now. 
Um, and then, like, that's the end of the transmission. And then next thing, like, you know, if you're living in that city is, oh, this massive boat washed up on shore. So what is the explanation that, hey, um, <laughs> the, the, the sister of this billionaire dude created these mind control devices uh, that, that, you know, were being used on the Supers this whole time. And that's why they said the evil thing. You know, it just it just felt uh, like – it just felt like, oh wow, we're shortcutting it to the end where everyone has a happy ending. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, uh, and if you, if you think about the the opening sequence, not that different. You know, uh, <laughs> the Underminer was going to destroy that building were it not for these people. So yeah, w- was the <laughs> were the law enforcement, uh, you know, the regular non super law enforcement going to stop that giant drill from hitting the Capitol? Well, as they said, they as they said in the uh, in the opening scene, Jeff, we have insurance to cover things like that. Right. So um, <laughs> there, there wouldn't be a citywide fight, right? If they just <laughs> let him do his thing. So <laughs> it's not like Brad Bird has a good. Um, I, I don't think he thinks much of like the general public, right? Or at least in the first movie, um, you know, a, a couple sequences of property damage or something while the superheroes were trying to do their job, and all of a sudden they're outlawed. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I think realistically, wouldn't we see more crime or something happening now that the super, superheroes are outlawed? I don't know. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, at the end, it's like, oh, I, I guess everything's forgiven now. Like, it, yeah. people were able to explain that, no, the, the supers were under mind control. They were really still good. It just, it, yeah. I, I just think it's pretty, pretty silly. So, anyway, uh, any closing thoughts as we wrap up here? I think it's a movie that we uh, enjoyed greatly. Has some issues, uh, not as yeah. good as the first one, but still a lot of fun. I mean, I'm glad that Bradbury gets to make a superhero movie again, and now that we're in the height of superhero insanity, and uh, it is refreshing to see a movie like this. Like, I still, I still go back thinking of uh, on Infinity War and kind of how disappointed I was with certain aspects of that movie. I didn't go back and see it in theaters, and. You know, I just feel like a certain type of superhero story I'm getting really tired of. And this is so still feels fresh, still feels new and much more rewarding because it's so intimate. I agree with everything you said, except the negative stuff about Infinity War. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I think uh, I think it, it definitely does add something to the conversation that Infinity War does not. So well worth checking out. Um, all right, find more episodes of our podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes from, our theme song comes from adamwarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be discussing next week. In the meantime, Matt Singer, it's been such a pleasure to have you on today. Where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Well, uh, screencrush.com uh, is the website that I uh, run, and our YouTube channel is youtube.com slash screencrush, and my Twitter account is twitter.com slash Singer. Jeff Kanata, how about you? I'm on Twitter at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. And we just had E3 week, and I have tons of coverage of E3. I spent all week there getting hands-on with all the big games. Uh, you can hear me talk about that on my video game podcast, DLC which you can find at 5by5.tv slash DLC. I also have a comedy science show called We Have Concerns. You can find that at wehaveconcerns.com. How about you, Devendra? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Devendra, and uh, I write about tech and gadget.com. Find all my stuff at davechen.net, twitter.com slash davechensky, that's davechensky. Subscribe to my YouTube at youtube.com slash davechensky. And next week, we're going to be talking about Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Uh, I usually say I'm really looking forward to that conversation, <laughs> but in this case, I'm not. Uh, yeah. I'm not looking forward to this movie. But hey, 
Bayona, maybe he's going to surprise me. He's a really good director. So I just really didn't like that first one. Anyway, uh, all right. Thanks for listening to the Slash Filmcast. We'll see you next week. By the way, here's a pro tip. Do not attempt to redeem uh, ultraviolet or digital codes before the DVD has been released. (laughs) (laughs) What happened? That's funny. Oh, because one time I tried to do that and it was like, this code is invalid. Like something, you know, and because they don't like unlock the codes or whatever until the DVD actually comes out. Yeah. And then they sent armed men to your house. Well, I, How do you I, have this I, I basically um, then could not redeem it for real after the movie came oh, out. No, yeah. So that sucked. Man. And then I and then I con- so so sometimes we get these movies from uh, PR firms that are trying to like get us to do press for them. And then I con- one time I actually contacted <laughs> Ultraviolet and I was like, hey, um, yo, I tried to redeem this and it didn't work. Can you please make it work again? And they said. We need you to verify that you are the person that originally purchased the movie. And I'm like, well, I can't do that, you know, because I didn't yeah. get, I didn't buy yeah. it. Um, yeah. And so then I just end up really pissed at Ultraviolet. But I, <laughs> but I'm actually really happy with this whole movies anywhere thing. Have you guys seen the movies anywhere? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's good, except it doesn't unlock the 4K versions in iTunes. And oh, that really? is kind of annoying. Yeah, so I did it for Blade Runner 2049, which was uh, you know very nice and convenient. And even though there is a 4K version of that movie on iTunes, if you go to it now in my library, you only see the HD version. And, of course, they have no way to upgrade. Like, they even pay a little more to get that higher quality version. So that's the big downside of movies anywhere right now. Huh. Well, in any case, I yeah. think it's been a lot better than having to, um, you know, redo the entire like like it used to be such a pain in the butt to have to buy. You, there's like five different video services, and you'd have to, you know, I have yeah. to buy it for Vudu, and then I have to buy it for you know Google. I, I need to I buy it for do, all these yeah. things, guys. Yeah. Because uh, you you know to I I have five copies of uh, you know Wanted on my. Uh, <laughs> 